You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. What was really fascinating with Sam was he's got a passion for working in the non-for-profit sector or the NGO sector um, with a varied background. Like He's been a lawyer um, and it's taken a while for him to find his professional feet in the field or for the profession to find his professional feet. I don't know, either way, but he's got a personal connection to the role um, and industry that I found really interesting as he is a professional storyteller to to frame it up that way and, and to hear him talk about giving back to a, a service or, or an area or, or a facet of life the way he has been was really nice to hear. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I was so pleased we were able to get Sam on the show. I've known, I've known Sam for, uh, ages now, really. And, you know, what I've always been really struck by Sam is that, you know, the not-for-profit space, there's always this tension that sits in between kind of direct service delivery, but then actually kind of going out and actually engaging the community around the issue that they're actually trying to solve. And, you know, Sam is a really rare individual in that I think he, he really kind of sees both sides of that. And, you know, his, way of kind of creating stories to actually go out and actually understand the frontline um, service is actually being provided and then really is able to actually articulate that in a way I think you know as he as he speaks speaks about on the um, on the actual podcast as he talks a lot about the influence of his of his own dad and kind of growing up with his dad being a tremendous storyteller and you know I reckon Sam um, having never met his dad but I reckon Sam would give him an absolute run for his money. Yeah, 100%. And it was really great, especially right now, to hear how an organisation who does employ and care for thousands and thousands of Australians um, is handling the pandemic in delivering frontline service. So, Sam Patterson. I'm the Director of Community Engagement at McKillop Family Services. Um, Coming to you today from, um, like many people, um, from home. Um, where where I'm um, trying to balance the difficult juggle of, of doing fulfilling my role as the director of community engagement and um, and the family responsibilities, particularly online learning. Is it worth me just giving a bit of background about what McKinsey yeah, does? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. So look, you know, essentially we're a community organisation that I guess you'd say we, what we really seek to do is to um, strive to ensure that every child has the opportunity to grow up in a, a sort of safe and nurturing environment. So. So our work is broken into probably three key areas. So one is early intervention, and that work involves um, working with families to empower them to create a really safe environment. So the the families we deal with will often be dealing with issues such as alcohol and drug abuse or or drug use, um, violence in the home, mental health issues, um, even single-parent families or or poverty. So they're, they're... it's so hard to be a parent <laughs> um, and juggle everything as you know, but to have some of these other complexities thrown in. So, so our, I guess, key goal is to try and support those families and keep the family unit together. Um, unfortunately, there are times when children um, aren't safe in their home for whatever reason, and in that case, we we provide support for those kids. So essentially through foster care, which people probably understand is is um, living in another family, who, which is a volunteer arrangement. Um, and we also do residential care, which is also a house in the community, but with um, a 24-7 staffing model. So that, that tends to be for kids with, um, who've got 
probably more complex behaviours and had a more um, more challenging home environment. Um, and we also do education. So we run free schools for kids who are disengaged from education and we do outreach work. We, do, we have teachers go out and do outreach into um, our foster homes and residential homes where, where kids would otherwise not be engaging in school. So that's it in a nutshell. In terms of um, how the pandemic's impacted, I think the really challenging thing for us um, has been that all of our work is very, very relationship-based um, and it's really, really important um, to do the work effectively that we have that face time with people. So, um, and it's important for two reasons. One, that, that personal relationship with our workers is so critical to... Um, uh, to instilling the confidence and the skills in the, the, whether the kids we're working with or the families we're working with. But it's also really important because, um, you know, people may have read in the media that one of the big issues is that we know from a lot of evidence in the past that isolation is when um, issues in families can escalate um, and, and it can be hidden away. And so one of the things that, that we've been concerned about is the, um, that more homes will be unsafe and that more kids will be um, suffering behind closed doors. And so a really important part of our work is just getting out and being in the home so that they can look for warning signs and, and just being there is, is really critically important. So, so I guess um, for, the, for the people we work with, they're at an increased risk. Um, for our staff, it's been really difficult to be able to, um, well it's been a, a challenge to provide that same high quality service when you can't physically be present all the time and we're forever balancing the critical responsibility to provide the best service for clients but also the critical responsibility of ensuring the well-being of our staff. And I think what we've seen is just um, an extraordinary level of resilience from both clients and staff. And for me, an extraordinary level of creativity as well. And it's just little things. Like one of the stories that I heard from WA was um, um, the, a worker was working with a family and the family um, didn't have internet. They just they didn't have internet connection. And so the worker would do um, get into the habit of going driving out to the home, which was a pretty remote home, and... Um, and they would turn on their, that they would tether their phones so that the, 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 the people in the house could connect to the internet. And then they'd do a Zoom meeting um, with that internet connection. So the, the, our worker was sort of essentially in the front yard of the house, but still using technology um, and enabling that family that otherwise wouldn't have had any real opportunity to connect. And of course, you know, the kids were able to sort of look out the window and wave and sort of have that reassurance of knowing um, the worker was there as well. So just those little things like that have been really quite inspirational for, for me as a, a support service leader to see at our front line. Has mm. mm. so there been any spaces that you've seen, I suppose, technology or where you've been forced to innovate, even in, like that's a, that's at a case of a caseworker working out in Western Australia, but organisationally, have you seen anything or responded to any areas where you feel like you need to grow as a result of COVID-19 to continue your service? Um, do you mean in terms of increased needs? Just in terms, in terms of, of how you are running your support or 
um, care, whether it be education, disability, or with children and youth and their families. Um, in terms of COVID-19, has really isolated a lot of people and then also um, cut off a lot of people due to that isolation. How have you um, responded to that as an organisation, I suppose? You haven't been able to be in there at some points or have you always had access to... Uh, getting into people's homes or being there as a support or having an ear or having having a means to communicate via technology? I don't know if some people um, have any other means. Yeah, look, my, my um, as far as I'm aware, there really haven't been any um, people who've missed out on service delivery as a result. And, um, and it's really just been because of... Um, um, the, our ability to sort of support them with the technology to to be able to keep in touch. It probably just hasn't been. Um, I, I guess it's it's just not quite um, the same if you if you for, for such a relationship program to not have that face to face. I think one of the other things that's um, been really challenging is just um, um, take for example the foster care program. Um, you know, foster carers rely very much that they can at times be dealing with some kids with some pretty challenging behaviours, and they really rely on the support of our caseworkers to help them to manage that. So, so having that sort of worker at the end of the phone, or indeed um, in the home, if possible or if required, is important. Um, and the, the the change to technology, it's been a bit of a, a poison chalice because on the one hand, um, they've been able to um, to probably have more access to the caseworkers and certainly be able to see the caseworkers' face more often um, and have those conversations. On the downside of things, um, um, I'll, I'll give you a story to give you an example. I was, I was chatting to some carers the other day who had four kids in their care. Um, now, when you're a foster carer, a really important part of the role is to facilitate um, um, opportunities for the birth parents to continue to have contact with kids. And that can vary depending on each child. Um, the court might, you know, there's court orders involved and it might be that the young person has a visit a week or it might be a visit a fortnight. It really depends. This particular foster care, what, what happened in a pre-COVID world was that um, that um, access, as it's called, would be provided by um, one of our workers coming and collecting the kids, um, taking the kids to see the birth family, and then coming back half a day later or a day later. So that would provide a bit of respite at times. You know, they've got less kids in the house and it's a bit of a breather. With COVID, what's happened is that um, all of that access now happens online. So um, in this particular case, the family were reflecting on the week just gone and they'd had north of 20 Zoom conferences in the last week. And that comprised a combination of checking in with our worker, um, checking in, providing the opportunity for birth families to see and chat to the kids, which is really important. Online learning, um, three of the kids were school age. And so I guess what happens is that, um, you know, foster care is tough. Um, but we, you get a lot of support and you get a lot of respite. With COVID, some of that time for a break has gone, and um, and and that's just sort of been um, one of the that, that's just indicative of some of the challenges that we we've, we've seen as a result of the pandemic. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. There's I, yeah, there's a really really great um, story to share. I think Sam, in terms of this, you don't um, much like where we kind of started talking about teachers. I think you have you know the one thing that I kind of I, I really take out of this time is that it is about kind of an appreciation for the for the unseen unseen jobs that that a lot of people do. So whether that's foster care, whether that's yeah. actually supporting people, is that a lot of our community just actually does not see. Um, you know, the kind of, I think the, the hidden people in the community who actually, actually keep it together. And one of the questions I really wanted to kind of ask, ask you, Sam, is that, I mean, you've been involved over a long period of time in kind of these, these organizations that, yeah. that are kind of the, the hidden pieces that keep our community moving. And I guess I just would love for you to share with the listeners kind of really what, what brought you to the, to the sector initially and kind of what keeps you going in terms of, Kind of you know seeing kind of the story and actually what what unfolds. It'd be great to kind of hear what brought you in and kind of what sustains you during times like this. Of course, yeah. Look, um, I, I might begin in the present and just say that um, you're right. Um, these are, and I think a lot of people have heard of the term foster care, but I don't think a lot know what it entails and what's involved. And I think. Um, you know, my role, as I said, is director of community engagement. That's my, my role is literally to engage community, and that means um, our existing community, but also prospective supporters. Um, and my job is to really um, connect people to our work because I mean, I just think everybody craves connection, and I think everybody wants the opportunity to feel good about themselves and and make a a difference to their community and I think most people um, are attracted to things that they have a personal experience with or that they have, you know, they might have benefited from it or they might have been touched by it in some way and I think that um, one of the challenges in the work that I do is that it is a bit of a niche area and a lot of people haven't had experience of it and so my job is to find ways to connect people to, find um, unique ways to connect people and I, I just think there is always a way that you can make a story relatable. Um, so whether it's telling that story about those foster carers and it might trigger in um, a parent with no experience of um, family services or foster care, that sort of um, 20 Zoom meetings, wow, you know, or um, just, just connect with that challenge of balancing online learning with a whole lot of competing demands. So for me, um, my job is as simple and as hard as that, connecting through stories. Um, um, so that, that's, that's to say that. In terms of how I came to it, um, oh, how far back do I, you know, I think it's probably been a 40-year journey, um, Joe and Patrick. I mean, I, I, I reflect back to, um, and it's only recently, I've done this quite succinctly, but, you know, I grew up in, um, in South Australia in a horse racing family. So, you know, my dad was a racehorse trainer. And um, and it was a, probably a pretty blue 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 collar background, but as a kid, um, an incredibly exciting dynamic background. You know, dad's in the paper all the time. You got 15 horses that you can jump on out the back. Um, it's this idyllic lifestyle. You know, swimming horses in the beach in the morning, um, amazing stuff. Um, that sort of, I guess, um, fell apart when I was seven, and my mother passed away. And at that time, my father was also reasonably unwell. So my sister and I, there were two of us, got, um, I guess, put into what you'd call an informal kinship care arrangement. So kinship care is foster care provided by a family member. So, so within six days of my mum passing away, I'd moved states and I was having my first day at school. 
um, and I'd gone from a sort of working class um, um, public you know, um, school um, with mum as a teacher to a, to a white collar affluent you know private boys school so it was a real significant shift and I think I, I think that the thinking at the time was keep a child busy and distract them from the upset so the reason I share that story is for me I think I should add as well that my dad was one of the greatest storytellers I've ever known so I think he instilled in me that love of story I think um, through my teen years I sort of spent school term in one world and holidays in another world and I, I, I sort of saw this real I think that instilled in me without me knowing it at the time a, a real um, sense a real strong value of social justice um, and you know um, I think the other thing was it sort of instilled in me an ability to relate with a lot of different people from a whole lot of different backgrounds which I think has stood me really in really good stead in my professional role so so that's sort of um, that's how I think I think that that childhood instilled social justice and love of story and I, I had a, a probably 20 year career of trial and error trying to stumble across what it is that I'm passionate about where I, um, I, I worked as a lawyer for five years I worked in the corporate sector as a consultant for seven years and it probably took me until my mid-30s to realise that my real passion was in um, the not-for-profit sector and social justice and telling the stories of people who, who didn't otherwise have a platform and using those stories to connect community to support them. And, um, and even that was by accident. I was working in a, a comms consultancy and um, a client of mine was Wesley Mission and I did a piece of work for them and the next thing I know I started to get referrals from not-for-profits and I I built a, a practice by accident in the not-for-profit sector and I just realised that that was the work that really connected with me and, um, and now here I am. You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production, a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. If you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. Sam, I guess in terms of kind of, you know, that, that parallel between kind of you're talking about um, switching switching worlds. I mean, it's, um, yeah. how do you think that kind of plays out in the in the not-for-profit sector? Because, I mean, in, in my experience, yeah. that, you know, it really is about that you have to tell the story, but then there's this there's often this disconnect with, um, that 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 should be something that's going more towards um, I guess you know just to shorten it it's towards frontline delivery. So if you're communicating, yeah. you're not necessarily supporting the service. I mean, can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about that and how they're interlinked? Um, yeah, I think so. Like I, um, I, I, I think yeah, you know, like often in not, not for profit. Um, I think there is there's a danger of having this dichotomy between the frontline service delivery and the um, support services. Um, 
so to me, I, I, I'm just trying to, can you just connect me back to the question, Joe? Yeah, with this interplay that sometimes happens in a yeah. not-for-profit environment where it is that sense of this, this connection between the people who are sure. supporting it, i.e. kind of doing community outreach, but then the people who are actually directly delivering the service. Yes. And yeah. you know, it's like you've always been able to close that gap. And I'm just interested yeah. in kind of the techniques yeah. that you use to do that and your point of view on sure. why that's so important. Yeah. Well, let me say a couple of things in response to that. One of the things that we were most conscious of um, when COVID um, came and, and all of a sudden we were all working from home was that there, were, there was all these messages flying around saying work from home, you need to work from home to be safe and so on. Um, we've got over a thousand staff and half of them are residential care workers who are working in homes 24-7 with kids who um, it's fair to say are not always good at following directions from government. So they're probably, you know, um, they're out and about a bit and it's really difficult for staff because they're doing their best to support the kids to remain at home. And and some of them have um, maybe um, vulnerable themselves or have vulnerable family members. So there's a lot of concern there. And we were, we were quite, I think in the early days, we probably got the balance wrong. And um, I think I started to sense a bit of, a disconnect opening up between the frontline staff and the support staff. So we started to really um, change our comms and just, you know, put ourselves in the shoes of a frontline person and make sure that we were tailoring our comms to, with, with all of the perspectives of different staff in mind. So that was one thing we did. The other thing that we did was, um, um, you know, I sort of heard about this thing called Giving Tuesday. Um, which is a sort of a, it's a fundraising kind of program, but we one of the um, themes was around giving gratitude. So we organised a thing where we got all of our support services together um, and encouraged them to do um, really show their creativity, be it a video, be it a, a, a card, an email, a poem, a story, anything, anything that um, expressed their gratitude to frontline workers. And um, we, we sent them out to all of our frontline staff and just little techniques like that. Um, you know, these staff came in on a, on a Monday and got these beautiful messages of gratitude from across the organisation. And I think those little things really break down silos. Yeah. I think in storytelling more broadly, I, I think there's a, there's a young woman that um, I've been working with um, a, a bit, I won't tell you the whole backstory, but a, a care leaver from McKillop who's now in her 20s who came to us wanting to... Um, wanting to give back to McKillop because of it had taken her probably nine years, eight or nine years from leaving care to reflect on the difference that McKillop workers made to her life. They got her out of a pretty tough situation and she needed that time to process. But then she came back. And and I think people like that, um, us being able to share her story, those stories, I think for a start, um, it, um, it creates... Our frontline staff see us um, being able to relate to young people in care. And so all of a sudden we're not seen as these people who sit in the ivory tower and, and don't understand the work. I think also, um, um, you know, through, through, I just think that the future of out-of-home care, I mean, we, we talk a lot about voice of young people, but I don't think we do it well. But I have learned more from my conversations with Taylor um, than I've learned in my previous five years at McKillop because you just hear these little things that you, you otherwise don't 
think about that impact the lives of these young people in care and that can be really, really easily fixed. Um, I'll give you a, 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 an example. Um, Taylor was saying to me, gave me this great story about how, you know, she's just getting her... Uh, I, I'll tell you the whole story, but the gist of it is that she never learned how to drive when she was in residential care because no one had the time to um, spend the hours logging up her hours. As a result of that, um, the, the, the number of jobs that she's been able to apply for has been really, really small because so many jobs you need a driver's licence. Furthermore, she's had to live in inner Melbourne to be near jobs. That means she has to pay higher rent. Um, she finds it hard to get to jobs because she's relying on public transport. So, And she's behind the eight ball because she's taken so long to get a steady job that she's sort of 26, 27 and just starting to get a stable income. Um, and I just sort of reflected on that and thought so many issues have impacted this young person's life through no fault of her own just because um, someone wasn't able to think about um, spending an hour every couple of weeks or every week um, teaching them how to drive and getting those log hours up. And, and I think through sharing those little stories, it's just a reminder to frontline staff and they start to see that we're connecting and relating to the work that they're doing and it starts to build this trust between us and it starts to ultimately enhance practice and get better outcomes for the kids that we're working with so i just think it's a really nice example mm. that's a that's a great story sam and such a good example of um listening and storytelling i was going to ask on that note do you have like a process or a practice within the mckillop where you do go outreach and and ask those stories of either people who have been in service and come out of service or care or people who are, who are in right now um, and have a means, a safe means of sort of saying how they're feeling, what they're experiencing and, and their hopes and dreams. Yeah, we do. And we, we sit down and, we, you know, a critical part, something that um, in the five years, five years ago when I came into McKillop, I just insist that when I've only got a team of six comms people, but we get out at every opportunity um, to go to programs and I, because I think the funny thing is that you can ask for stories all you like, but um, it's difficult for frontline staff to identify what's a story that's going to engage someone in the community to get behind our work because so often the great stories are things that they do every day and they just think that's just my job. That's just a matter of course. So um, I, I never go out to our programs um, and don't come back with two or three stories in my back pocket because I, I think, you know, what we bring is an understanding, you know, we, we can sort of get into the minds of all of the people that might, um, whether it be donors, whether it be potential foster carers, um, whether it just be other staff. I mean, a really important part of our job is um, engaging all of our staff in the organisation as a whole because in, in a big organisation, people can get so caught up in their day-to-day -day work, they don't um, think about all the other amazing outcomes the organisation's doing. And I think when, they, when you open their eyes to that, they really feel part of something bigger and it, it really lifts their pride in their work. So, um, yeah, you know, that's what we do. We go out and we, um, we get those stories. And I think um, it's just sort of sometimes nice as well for... To, to your point, Patrick, for the kids to have the opportunity to talk about their hopes and dreams with someone a bit different. Um, and, um, and so I think that, I don't know, I might be um, being 
a bit Pollyanna here, but I, I mean, I tend to think that our going out and having those conversations can actually be a helpful part of, um, you know, what kids need is is hope and what they need. These kids need hope and they need an adult who listens to them and believes in them. And it's as simple as that. Like I, I've really, I, that, that's probably oversimplifying it, but to me, these kids have never had an adult who's, or often haven't had an adult who trusts and believes in them. So I think sometimes our being there can just sort of be really beneficial for the kids as well, as well as us being able to, to gather those stories. Mm-hmm. I had one one last question. I've got a big history background and I just love um, viewing the world in terms of where it's come from and where it's going and understanding the MacKillop yeah. story. I just wanted you to chat to the MacKillop story. I understand it's made up of three different organisations that have had place in Australia since 1800s, um, but MacKillop, yeah. the family service, has only really been around for um, the start of the millennia. Yep. Yeah, sure, I'll talk for that. Yeah, so our story goes back to three founders. So one was a woman in Ireland called Catherine McCauley. One was a um, a bloke in Ireland called Edmund Rice. And the other was Mary McKillop. And all three of them were really focused on, predominantly on education, really, educating, giving young people um, um, the opportunity to to have access to an education who otherwise wouldn't. And... Um, they, long story short, they founded what are called religious congregations. So one was called the Sisters of Mercy. Mary McKillops was called the Josephite, Sisters of St. Joseph, and Edmund Rice, the Christian Brothers. And those organisations came to Australia sort of in the late 19th century, or Mary McKillop was already here, of course. And, um, and over the 20th century, they, they established sort of um, community agencies. And what they, in, in about the mid-90s, they sort of realised by then, the three organisations had seven different agencies that were competing with each other for government funding and doing similar work. So they, they sort of said, what about we merge the seven into one, which is pretty extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, hard enough to get a cultural fit when two organisations merge, let alone seven merge. Yeah. But, um, but they did it brilliantly. And, um, and in 97, McKillop was formed. So whilst we have a as McKillop a 23-year history, we really have about a 170-year history. And it's a really good point, Patrick, because, you know, going back to engaging our staff, um, and Joe helped us a bit with this at the contenders, but, you know, that story, that founding story, I, th- I think an interesting thing is probably about a, about a quarter to a third of our staff are Catholic. So um, whilst... Um, but, but the great thing about those stories, um, while those three people had a strong Catholic faith, really what they were doing was being driven by social justice. And um, and the thing that unites all of our staff, I think, is a real strong sense of social justice. And and I look at the, the work, I've delved a bit into the history of those founders and the work they did and how they approached their work. And there's enormous similarities to the work that we do today. And I think that it's quite inspirational for staff to to hear that story and know that um, our CEO uses the phrase, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, and I think it's true. And I think it just gives you an added sort of um, impetus to continue really going above and beyond to get the best outcomes for the, for the people we work with. It's a great story. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sam, for taking a bit of time to chat to us um, today. You know, I think just to... Just to close it out, I mean, I think it's it's really 
in, to me it's quite it's quite profound one when you think about it you know really the 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 issues that we're actually dealing with today we've been dealing with for you know i mean not just uh, 170 yeah. years for the organization of Makilla, but as long as we've actually kind of been gathered as 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 human beings in, into communities and i think yeah. you know the kind of last question for me was really like where do you where do you see the future of all of this actually going sam I and mean, you have to pull the crystal ball out and we're kind of we're chatting which i hope we are by the way um in in kind of another 20 years or so i mean what do you what do you think will be the kind of the the next breakthrough in kind of community um i guess not in not in necessarily just in service provision but in kind of the the construct of kind of these these actual issues in terms of normalizing that you know as you said not every kid gets uh, yeah. necessarily an adult to, to provide them with trust or believe in them. I'm just wondering where you see this all actually going over the next period of time. Yeah, it's a it's a really tough question and um you know, at times it's hard you know, at times I'm glass half empty, at times I'm glass half full. I mean, you know, the the brutal reality is the system is breaking at the moment. Um there was a report this week, you know, this in, in Victoria alone there's twelve thousand kids in out of home care. Um, there was a, a report done that forecast that now with the impact of COVID, we're going to have um, potentially north of 27,000, so double that in six wow. years. Right? Now, now we're struggling to um, provide, you know, to get enough carers to get to, to be able to support 12,000. So it's it's not going to happen with the current system. So, you know, one thing there needs to be, I think, a real shift towards early intervention, and this report showed that. Um, you know, a 10-year commitment to early intervention programs will, there'll be an upfront cost, but it'll break even in five years and it will deliver um, over a billion dollars in savings in 10 years, plus better outcomes because more kids in the home. But, um, you know, th that's data. Great. And I mean, that data is important, but yep. you need story as well. And you need to make these issues relatable and you need to get that community. And I, there's, there's a campaign called Home Stretch, which is about keeping kids in foster care supported Kids in foster care, their, their support ceases at 18, um, and it, um, Home Stretch is pushing for that to be extended to 21. Great example of making an issue relatable. Simply, what they did was imagine your child leaving home at 18. Is your is your kid going to be ready? No way. <laughs> now, um, you went, talking to people with a really stable home environment, just imagine the complexity when they've come from a. Um, a, a, you know, a, a less stable environment and you start to see this is just a no-brainer. And so that, that campaign's been successful because it had the data, but it had the relatable story that got a groundswell of support. So we need to continue to to just get people, I think, to be a bit um, a bit less selfish and a bit less judgmental. And um, I, I sort of hope that um, this is where I'm sort of wavering between half full and half empty. I mean, you know, COVID... Um, is it going to make us more selfish or less selfish? Where this, this this pandemic has highlighted, you just need to read the media um, on any day that, um, that those who are vulnerable are being impacted the most, and it's really exacerbated those vulnerabilities. Whereas those people who weren't are actually probably just a little bit inconvenienced. And um, I just hope that one of my hopes from at the start of COVID was people are going to be in the home a lot more and maybe it's going to, um, you know, rebuild the strength of that family unit and people's appreciation of family and that sort of sets us up to talk about our work because our work is about trying to create a family for kids who through no fault of their own haven't had a stable one 
Um, jury's out. Jury's out to me. I, I just hope that, um, you know, I hope that COVID, one of, the, one of the things we're doing at work is creating a bit of a COVID time capsule. We're getting our staff to share anything from their personal or professional life that has just is their recollection of this experience and we're going to pull all that together and we're going to just keep coming back to that. And, and I think the reason that's important is it, it will just ensure that it, it'll almost force us to, to do a bit of self-reflection of this experience and it will prevent us just going back to, um, to where we were before. And I think that if we can do that, we'll be better off as a community. I think we'll be less judgmental and... Um, and and hopefully, you know, we just need to see a bit of leadership from our um, political leaders, of course, as well. And because the issues we're dealing with require more than thinking beyond an election cycle, so we just need to somehow um, get that long-term thinking as well. Yeah. So hopefully, in 20 years' time, um, it's a lot better. It's a lot bigger issue. Um, we're a much more socially just community, and um, and we'll look back on COVID as a it's a pretty awful time, but a time that um, that we that, that was a sort of turning point for the better. Thank you for listening to BAU Business as Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's B A U P O D C O.